Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I'm here with Sarah Regara, who's a proud mother, an engineer, and a self-tracker. Um, Sarah, that was a brilliant talk. Thank I, I, you. Just really compelling. I sent some very enthusiastic tweets during your talk. Oh, I need to check them out later. Yeah, absolutely. I, I didn't have time during the talk. <laughs> I thought, yes, yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, yeah no, don't worry. <laughs> so, um, your story about self-tracking and self-care was really inspirational to me. Thank you. I have type 1 diabetes, I have depression, um, and it was really inspirational that you've taken your kind of engineering background. Tell us about this finger tracking yeah. work that you, you presented. Yeah, so I have Parkinson's disease and one of the main uh, symptoms is slowness of movement which then the medications help with, but you have to time them very carefully to, to get the optimal effect. If you, t- if you take them too, too close together, you will get something called dyskinesia, which is a very uncomfortable, mo- constant moving thing that you don't want to have too much of. And if you take them too, too far apart, you will get, you, it won't get the effect you want to because you will, you will be very stiff and slow movement. So this finger tapping test that I use to, to find my optimum timing is something that I came about, I came across in, in, a, in a doctoral thesis a couple of years, quite a few years ago now. And I, I started using it in my everyday life to manage my Parkinson's disease. I don't have to do it often these days because I, by doing it I learned how, how my body should feel like when, I, when I'm optimally medicated. So by using by doing the finger tapping, I, I learned to I learned to know my body better. I think um, there's something about this kind of research. This is kind of N of one research. Definitely, yeah. Um, something about this kind of service user um, lived experience research that answers questions that we can't answer from conventional research. Yeah, I agree, and that that's also where my Criticism only was carefully careful from stage of, of the RCTs, the randomized control trials. I think I don't think it's instead of RCTs. I think it's it's a com- complement that that we can use to learn more about the lived experience and what really works, and then it, it can feed into the the RCTs and and the vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. But what needs to change in science publishing, particularly for this kind of work, to get more <laughs> respect? Uh, a lot, unfortunately. Uh, I think I, I know myself by experience how difficult it is to get these kind of unconventional studies published. Uh, it doesn't really fit the current evaluations uh, and review processes of, of, of journals, which means it, it, it doesn't get published, so it doesn't get known. And it, it's sort of a self-fulfilling downward spiral because if if no one if the reviewers don't know don't understand it they will never get through review and that's what happens often so but why is that because i remember 10 years ago looking at the center of evidence-based medicines rewritten hierarchy of evidence yeah. and on top of systematic reviews of randomized controlled trials they yeah. had put n of one trials what do you mean did they put it they put them at the highest level absolutely Oh, I need to check that out because that's not something that has really spread through the system, I must say. Yeah, absolutely. I guess this is something which is understood by people that uh, work, work in, in academia work. and understand evidence very well, but not necessarily yeah. in the publishing world. Yeah, that's probably true. And I think it takes a lot of... Uh, it takes a critical mass to get that sort of shifted. Because whether we like it or not, academ- academia is a very hierarchical and... and uh, 
elitistic world. So it's it's basically very difficult to change such a such a world. So you need to reach critical mass, I think. But I, I think more and more people are seeing the benefits of M01 and, and similar and lived experience. But it's still it's still a challenge to work in the area to get published. And are you unusual in this field? Do you think are there lots of people like you doing this kind of work? I wouldn't say there's lots of people, but there are there are more and more people trying. Uh, Inspired by my work, but also inspired by other people in, in this field. It's, it's still a small field, but it's increasing, I would say. So are they people working specifically in Parkinson's? What other disease areas are people so exploring? A few in Parkinson's, but uh, I mean, I sometimes say I, I have I mean, diabetes envy, because in diabetes there's, there are very clear uh, objective measures that you can use. And then, I, of course, I know it's not as simple as that. I know it's more complicated. But in Parkinson's and lots of the other uh, brain-related or, or even behavior-related uh, illnesses, there are no objective measures, not, nothing you can measure and say, this, this number is me, this number is you. So, and that makes it more challenging to actually uh, do quote-unquote science on it. I don't think it's uh, impossible, but it, you need to be more creative about it. And how do you see the field evolving over the next few years? What are the barriers to this kind of work? Well, one of the barriers definitely is, is the publications uh, and, the, and the, 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 this big challenge is involved with getting this kind of work published because if you, don't, if you can't get it out there in, in, in these journals that, that are considered the respectable ones it won't spread it's as simple as that unfortunately it was a really, really compelling talk. I urge people to watch it on the live stream. It's my <laughs> favourite talk of the conference so far. Oh, thank, thank you, you so very, much. thank you very much. It was nice. nice. Thank you. I'm very pleased to hear that. Mm -hmm.